In honor of Veterans Day, celebrating all the brave men and women who fought to save us and our democracy, we want to dive into how we as a country truly honor our heroes. So here's the question. Who do you picture when I say the word veteran? Is that person white? If you're like me, probably, right? Which is why there's a lot of stuff to dig into here. And so we're going to start off with a poem by and about someone who is decidedly not white and that talks about what fighting for your country feels like when you're born with black skin. I'm going to do this as a poem, not as a rap for those of you who heard the episode where our Misasha asked me to rap something. Just wrap it up for us. Okay, now. All right, fine. Looky here, America, what you done done. Let things drift until the riots come. Now your policemen let your mobs run free. I reckon you don't care nothing about me. You tell me that Hitler is a mighty bad man. I guess he took lessons from the Ku Klux Klan. You tell me Mussolini's got an evil heart. Well, it must have been in Beaumont that he had his start. Because everything that Hitler and Mussolini do, Negroes get the same treatment from you. You Jim Crowed me before Hitler rose to power, and you're still Jim Crowing me right now, this very hour. Yet you say we're fighting for democracy. Then why don't democracy include me? I ask you this question because I want to know how long I got to fight both Hitler and Jim Crow. That's from Langston Hughes, Beaumont to Detroit, 1943. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Okay. So that Langston Hughes poem, and I'm still a little sad you didn't wrap that, but okay. <laughs> I tried. I know I could have done it better if I went back and did it again, but you guys got the raw first take. Yeah, it was powerful though. You know, the Equal Justice Initiative included this poem at the start of their lynching in America targeting Black veterans report. And man, I mean, it really got my attention as it got yours, I think, because it so powerfully describes the experience that every non-white veteran experiences at some point which is really, I'm fighting for my country, but do my countrymen and women consider me worth fighting for? Do they value my life in the same way that I'm literally putting my life on the line because I value theirs? Which, considering that this Veterans Day is a week after a historic election that showed an incredible divide in views in this country, is a point really worth sitting with and contemplating right now. Agreed. And, you know, even the title of this poem, which is Beaumont to Detroit, is historically significant. Bring it on. So here we go. During World War II, Black communities in the United States faced an unrelenting onslaught of racial attacks, not unlike, you know, in some ways what this year has been. The resulting unrest sparked clashes between Black and white people, which in turn provoked violent reprisals against Black communities. So people were coming after Black communities as a result of these fights, these interracial fights. In June 1943, so-called riots in Beaumont, Texas and Detroit, Michigan, led to death, to injuries, to economic loss and deepened racial hostility. In this environment, returning Black veterans were not only denied benefits and the opportunities for economic advancement they had been promised, but they were also burdened by their veteran status and military service, which made them prime targets for racial violence, especially if they publicly challenged Jim Crow segregation. So basically, you are stuck. You went and fought for your country and everything that you were promised as a result of fighting for your country it was a big fat lie. Right. It not only didn't happen, but you were actually still a target of racial persecution. 
So, but let's back up even further. All right. So we started in World War II. We're going back. In past episodes, we've talked about Black soldiers in the Civil War and the persecution they faced post-war. According to the Equal Justice Initiative in 1868, the Secretary of War reported to Congress that Black soldiers in Kentucky, quote, having served in the Union Army, were the special objects of persecution and in hundreds of instances have been driven from their homes. Can you imagine that? Hundreds of soldiers, Black soldiers who fought in the Civil War, driven from their homes. I'm about to make a snarky comment, but I can just imagine some people would say hundreds of people, who cares? We already don't care about the 220 plus thousand people who've died from COVID. So why the hell should we care about hundreds of soldiers? But anyway, I do think that this is horrible. I'm just feeling this screen of skepticism from so many people that probably aren't the ones that are listening to this podcast. So thank you all for being here. I feel you. And I also think that when we think there are so many people out there talking about how we don't take enough care of our veterans, right? And how we should be respecting our veterans and respecting the flag. And I think when you think about veterans, then as you asked at the start, who do they look like? Because these people were veterans, they fought for their country and they're not being treated the same, they're being treated worse. For example, Peter Branford, a United States colored troops veteran, because remember they segregated the troops, was shot and killed without cause or provocation in Mercer County, Kentucky, while numerous other veterans were threatened, beaten, and whipped merely for attempting to locate their families and rebuild their lives after the war. So they were just trying to find their family. And that alone was enough for people to want to beat them and kill them. At Bardstown in Nelson County, Kentucky, a mob brutally lynched a United States Colored Troops veteran. All right, this is a little graphic, but they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they cut off his sexual organs. He was then, that wasn't enough, he was then forced to run half a mile to a bridge outside of town where he was shot and killed. Clearly, even though slavery was technically abolished, there was a caste system still in place in the South, like we've discussed extensively through Reconstruction, where Black veterans were treated exactly the same as Black slaves had been. Now, you mentioned Reconstruction, and this is where, you know, we have to continue to look at this ugly history of our country because this violence was not isolated to Reconstruction. And that's according, again, to EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative. They report that on August 19th, 1898, right, so 122 years ago from when we're recording, Private James Neely of the 25th Infantry, which was an all-Black regiment that had just returned from heralded service in Cuba during the Spanish-American War, he visited the small town of Hampton, Georgia on a day pass from his post at Fort Hobson. The newspapers report that Private Neely came into Hampton wearing his blue uniform proudly. Yet when he entered the drugstore and ordered a soda at the counter, the white owner told him black customers had to order and drink outside in the rear. Private Neely protested, the two men argued, and Private Neely was thrown out of the store and onto the street outside where the conflict attracted attention. As Private Neely continued to insist that he had rights as an American and as a soldier, a crowd of armed white men gathered and chased him down the road, firing their weapons. Private Neely was later found dead of gunshot wounds. A local coroner's jury promptly declared that the murder had been committed by unknown parties. Don't know who that was, hmm, right? According to the Atlanta Constitution, army officials did not immediately respond or make arrangements to retrieve his remains. Like, think about this. People say, well, why don't you speak up when you're being persecuted? You have to report these things, but you speak up for your rights and you are being murdered, okay? That was in 1898, but segregation, just to put it in perspective, was not officially over until 1964. So going back to your point before, 
while the rules said that segregation was still happening, we as people in all of these communities made the decision about how to treat our veterans. These human beings serve to protect our country. And so with that in mind, what do you make of that period in history, right? Like, I think all of our minds can be a little conflicted saying, well, technically he wasn't supposed to be there because whites and blacks were supposed to be in separate places. But are we serious? You're going to murder someone who served this country because, and so goes back to a conversation actually you and I just had me, Sasha, about like, we think rules are in place, but not all rules are okay rules. They're still written by biased people. And so we need to choose what rules are meant to be broken. And that can be a very slippery slope. Totally. And I think this is a double-edged sword, right? As we are continually talking about here when we talk about black veterans or veterans of color, because due to racism, right? Even when you're in the army as a black soldier or in the military, you didn't see active combat as much as white soldiers because they didn't want to put you out there because then you'd be fighting next to white soldiers. And apparently that wasn't okay. However, when they did put black soldiers in combat, they often fought harder and were more decorated than many of their white counterparts. But then they returned home. They went from decorated war veterans to black men in America and were therefore stripped of their rights, dignity, and any hope of equality. That just reminded me, I was just in the waiting room of a doctor's office and was reading this article about it's not enough to be good. And so many people push back right now to this idea of police brutality saying, well, they talked back or black people just need to behave better in the face of this. But I think about it doesn't matter how you act. You're just seen as a black man first. And so for people who perhaps see President Obama as an everyday person, they won't see him as President Obama first. He might actually just be seen as a black man. And could you imagine something like that happening? Like, it's horrifying to think about the characterization that comes first before seeing the people for who they are or what they've done. Right. Completely. And I think that's also why we want to share so many personal stories today and narratives of people who fought for our country and who were not treated correctly and who were not given their fair share of what they fought for. They fought for rights that they didn't receive when they returned home. So let's take the Harlem Hellfighters and a huge thank you to Black History Bootcamp for making this group day 18 of their walk for justice. They were an infantry regiment out of the New York Army National Guard, so not even in the South, they're in the North, in both World War I and World War II. They earned their name, the Harlem Hellfighters, by spending, and get this, an unthinkable 191 days in all-out trench warfare on the front lines longer than any other American unit of World War One. I. I mean, 191 days in trench warfare. I think about like an hour in a trench, okay? And that's about as far as my mind can get. Um, 191 days. They toured for over six months, the longest deployment of any regiment. And they, also known as the 369th Regiment of Black Men, made up less than 1% of the soldiers deployed, yet they protected 20% of the territory assigned to the United States. And they lost more of their brothers. They lost 1,500 lives. And that was more than any other American regiment. And America used them as human decoys to defeat the Germans. But when they came home, America refused to honor the greatest hero of the entire war, Henry Johnson, no medals, although the French gave him their highest medal of honor. So remember the Harlem Hellfighters. Remember them because that's something I don't recall ever learning about that in our history textbooks. 
you know, I appreciate that you said we're sharing stories. I'm sorry I keep getting off topic with some of these points that I'm making today. But for every story we're telling you, there are hundreds more that we're not telling you. So we'll go through a few of these. On April 5th, 1919, a 24-year-old Black veteran named Daniel Mack was walking in Sylvester, Georgia, when he accidentally brushed up against a white man as they passed each other. The white man responded angrily, an altercation ensued, and that led to Mr. Mack's arrest. At his arraignment, Mr. Mack said, I fought for you in France to make the world safe for democracy. I don't think you've treated me right in putting me in jail and keeping me there because I've got as much right as anyone to walk on the sidewalk. And get this judge's response. This is a white man's country and you don't want to forget it. He sentenced Mr. Mack to 30 days on a chain gang for brushing up against a white man. That's amazing. So 1919 is also a pretty important year in history because they saw an event called the Red Summer. Again, something I did not know, and I'm learning as we're doing these episodes. But according to the History Channel, the ink had barely dried on the Treaty of Versailles, which formally ended World War I, when recently returned Black veterans grabbed their guns and stationed themselves on rooftops in Black neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., prepared to act as snipers in the case of mob violence in the July of 1919. Other people set up blockades around Howard University, a Black intellectual hub, and they created a protective ring around residents. Why did they do that, you ask? Well, get this. White sailors recently home from the war had been on a days-long drunken rampage, assaulting, and in some cases lynching, Black people on the streets of our capital, right? The relentless onslaught proved contagious, escalating in dozens of cities across the United States in what would become known as the Red Summer. The racist attacks in 1919 were widespread and often indiscriminate, but in many places they were initiated by white servicemen and centered upon the 380,000 Black veterans who had just returned from the war. Notably, President Woodrow Wilson said and did nothing to stop this violence. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Mm, Maybe just a little. All right. So In spite of that red summer period, 1.2 million black men would still enlist in the U.S. Army to fight in World War II in an army that remained racially segregated through the end of the war. The Equal Justice Initiative notes that black troops initially were barred from frontline combat and assigned to service duties, which included cleaning white officers' rooms and latrines as orderlies and janitors. But as casualties mounted, the army sent African-American troops into combat out of necessity. So basically they were like, yo, we've got no one else. You guys, you're in. Racial discrimination extended to veterans benefits as well. So if you remember, if you've heard about the GI Bill, Sarah, I know you and I have talked about the GI Bill before, but Black soldiers were denied access to programs like the GI Bill of Rights, which was designed to reward military service and assist veterans with housing, education, and employment. The GI Bill was, quote, the most wide-ranging set of social benefits ever offered by the federal government in a single comprehensive initiative and is often credited with creating the American middle class. All right. So it was supposed to be huge and big and help veterans returning from the war to get started and move back into society. Between 1944 and 1971, the federal government spent over $95 billion to provide benefits to veterans. And that was in 1944 to 1971 dollars, not 2020 dollars. In 1948, the GI Bill made up 15 percent of the federal budget. It created opportunities for home ownership, higher education and vocational training, and also provided capitals for veterans to start their own businesses. 
before the war ended, this is the part that really gets me. Black publications printed digests of the legislation and outlined the eligibility requirements. The GI Bill gave black soldiers in their communities a sense of hope that their service would entitle them to unprecedented opportunities for economic advancement. And unfortunately, those hopes went largely unrealized. Why? Well, let's back up. Because during the drafting of the law, chair of the House Veterans Committee, Mississippi Congressman John Rankin, who was known for his racism, does this also sound familiar, by defending segregation, opposing interracial marriage, et cetera, insisted that the program be administered by individual states, not the federal government. He then tried to stonewall an attempt to guarantee all veterans $20 a week of unemployment compensation for a year because he knew it would represent a significant gain for Black Southerners. Then when it came to implementation, some black veterans couldn't access the benefits promised to them because they hadn't been given an honorable discharge. And as you can imagine, more black veterans were discharged dishonorably than white veterans. If they wanted to go to school, if they could even afford to do that versus getting a job, of course, Southern colleges didn't admit black students at all and Northern colleges dragged their feet when the applicant was black. So 95% of black veterans had to go to black colleges, which at the time were underfunded and had way too many people applying for the seats that they had. On top of that, when you think about the facilities and services that were offered, there were limitations. Black veterans, for example, in a vocational training program couldn't train to say, become a plumber or electrician or printer because adequate equipment was only made available to white students. For black veterans who wanted to obtain housing, they were denied purchase in the suburbs, unlike their white counterparts. Not to mention that while the VA could co-sign low interest mortgages and other loans, they couldn't actually guarantee the loans. So white-run financial institutions were still able to refuse mortgages and loans to Black people. So, for example, in 1947, only two of more than 3,200 VA guaranteed loans in 13 Mississippi cities went to Black borrowers. Only two. Similar patterns existed up north. Less than 100 of the 67,000 mortgages issued by the GI Bill supported home purchases by non-white people, according to the history article we read. We would like to point out, honestly, if these challenges remain the same with additional ones, if you're a black female veteran, right? We're fast forwarding now because back in those days, women were not in the service in the same way. But if you're looking at more contemporary times, this is really relevant. And we've talked about intersectionality and it is even more challenging. According to the African-American Policy Forum, 43% of black veterans suffer from PTSD and one in three women in the armed forces is sexually assaulted at some point during her service, which is nearly twice the rate of the civilian population. Black women typically hold lower ranks than their white male or female counterparts, despite having more years of service. And there's this power imbalance that that creates, right? And that causes black women to experience sexual harassment and assault at a disproportionate rate. In addition, between 2007 and 2013, a study showed that Black transgender veterans were almost twice as likely as cisgendered vets to have reported sexual trauma while serving in the military. I mean, this is really a good reminder that the more categories we add on, the more intersectional our look is, the greater the rate of discrimination, assault, and more. And I really hope people don't take that to say, well, then they shouldn't serve. Right. That is not the answer. And that is not what we are suggesting at all, because we are humans and we deserve some fundamental safety and protection and ability to do the things that we are capable of doing, including serving in the military. Especially, I would think, when you are serving your country, right? This is not an individualistic move when you serve in the military. You are in it to protect freedoms. And I think it just continues to smack us in the face that these were freedoms that were not guaranteed to anyone who wasn't white 
when you came back to this country. So, you know, and unfortunately, the discrimination experienced by our Black veterans isn't unique to simply the Black experience in the United States. Sarah, have you heard of the 442nd Regiment, the Go for Broke Regiment in World War II? Really? Are you asking me a history question? You know the answer is probably not. Okay, well, if not, you're not alone. You know, PBS has a great section on its website about the war, and we'll put this in our show notes, and how various minority groups in the United States were affected and participated in World War II. And it's from this site that we pulled a lot of this information. Ooh, are we going to talk about Japanese people? Oh, our ancestors. Oh, wait, are we allowed to even be proud of that if we're talking about World War II against America? I think we have to recognize the complexity, right? Because, you know, I had a grandfather who fought in World War II on the American side and a very different story, right, in Japan. So anyway, I'm sure you have similar stories in your family. So after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, which pulled the United States into the Pacific theater of World War II, the federal government took the unprecedented step of ordering some 110,000 Japanese who were considered, quote, aliens because they had come from Japan and were not U.S. citizens, and American citizens of Japanese descent living along the West Coast of the United States out of their homes and into 10 inland internment camps. 110,000 people. I'm being really the sarcastic person who doesn't care about the 220-something lives that have been destroyed because of COVID. Oh, that's only half that number. It shouldn't matter at all. It's nothing. Sorry. I'm sure that the argument is that, well, these were people who we don't know what their allegiance is, right? Like this is clearly their countrymen just bombed us. So let's just group everyone. Although like, let's just group the most obviously foreign group, not the Germans, not the Italians, like let's just go Japanese. I shouldn't make an eye comment, right? Like that would really be racist. (laughs) Okay. And, but very obviously foreign, right? Right. You're not white, right? You don't look white and we'll just move you into horse barracks. We'll move you, we'll take all of your stuff and we'll put you in camps. So in addition, all Japanese American men of draft age, except those already in the armed forces, were classified as 4C, which was enemy aliens and forbidden to serve their country. It is shocking to think about that, you know, our Japanese parents are immigrants to this country, Misasha, your immigrant parent and my immigrant parent. But like, if our ancestors, if we had had any family who had moved here before that time, we would be affected by this. We wouldn't be here. Like, it's personal. This is actually really another level of personal. And I think this makes me always perk up when I hear about Japanese American history in the country. But like, we should all be perking up because we all come from somewhere. We're not like... Unless you're a Native American, again, we should be paying attention to these and seeing ourselves in all of these stories, because this is the history of how we've come to be right now. Yes, it's so important to remember because history repeats, right? And we know that history repeats. And so if we don't know history, then we're going to repeat it in ways that get worse and worse and worse for everyone. So much as I joke about me not knowing the history, okay, I do care and I do pay attention. You're coming around. All right, so Japanese Americans classified as enemy aliens for C. However, in early 1943, Washington reversed its policy on military service. The Japanese government had been making effective propaganda in Asia out of the internment of Japanese Americans in the United States. I mean, no big shock there. As the camps appeared to confirm their depiction of the war as a racial conflict. I mean, 
Yeah. So to respond to the Japanese propaganda and under pressure from Japanese American and civil liberties organizations, President Roosevelt authorized the enlistment of Japanese American men into the United States Armed Forces. So let's just pause here for a second and note that it's not because he thought that internment was wrong. It was more like a PR strategy, right? All right, back to the story. So Japanese Americans were now permitted to form a special segregated infantry outfit. Remember, segregated, kind of like Black Americans. The unit would come to be called the 442nd Infantry Regimental Combat Team. In Hawaii, where Japanese Americans had never been locked up, recruitment exceeded all expectations. When the army called for 1,500 volunteers, 10,000 turned up at recruiting offices. 10,000. And I think, Sarah, you're going to take us through what might have happened differently on the mainland. Right. Well, I'll think about it. That's where the internment camps were. Like, as you can imagine, not all Japanese Americans were eager to serve a government that had forced so many of them and their families into internment camps. Some in the camps refused to cooperate with the draft until their rights were restored. Many objected to the loyalty questionnaire they were forced to sign, which asked them to renounce allegiance to the Japanese emperor, which is a provision that many people found insulting. Other people felt that the new unit would be a suicide squad, right? We've all heard about the kamikaze, meant to only save the lives of white servicemen. And still some 2,100 men in the camp stepped forward for the new all-Japanese American unit. A lot of military leaders were reluctant to have Japanese Americans in the armed forces. Again, sound familiar, right? General Eisenhower's staff had actually initially rejected the idea of a Japanese American troop, but General Mark Clark, who was the commander of the Fifth Army in Italy, had said that he would take anybody that will fight. So guess where these people were sent? In June 1944, the men who signed on with the 442nd would find themselves in Italy. Thank you, Mark Clark, fighting alongside the 100th Infantry Battalion, which is a battle-tested unit made up of mostly Japanese Americans from Hawaii. The 100th had been formed in 1942 before the ban had been placed on the enlistment of Japanese Americans, and they had already seen action in North Africa and in Italy. So for months, the men of the 100th had distinguished themselves in repeated assaults on the German lines as the Allies fought northward in Italy. The 100th had lost over 950 men that they came to be called the Purple Heart Battalion. The fall of Rome in June 1944 had boosted Allied morale, but it had not ended warfare in Italy and new troops were needed to fight the Germans. And so as the campaign in Italy continued into the autumn, the newcomers of that 442nd and the combat-wise survivors of the 100th would be asked to spearhead the 5th Army's drive northward from Rome. Amazing, right? So, you know, according to one veteran named Tim Tokuno, he said, we all had the idea of proving that we were loyal Americans. And so everything was go, go, go forward, go forward. And so I understand it. We never retreated. We never took a backward step, always forward. I mean, can you imagine this? You're considered an enemy. If you were back in the States, you would be interned in horse barracks, basically, under armed guard. Yet you're still there fighting for the very same people who are interning you in the first place. So unbelievable. But the 442nd fought so well and so hard in the drive towards the German Gothic line that when General Clark led his men into the important port city of Livorno in full view of the cameras that accompanied him everywhere, he insisted, this is huge, General Clark, that the Japanese Americans march right behind his jeep. They were superb, said General George Marshall. They showed rare courage and tremendous fighting spirit. Everybody wanted them. In September, the 442nd was moved from the ongoing battle in Italy and rushed to France. Once considered a problem by the army, the 442nd was now seen as a problem solver. 
but the battles they would endure in the Vosges Mountains in France would be their greatest challenge, really due to higher up incompetence, not due to them. But on October 29th, 1944, the 442nd was called upon to rescue the so-called Lost Battalion, which was 275 men from the 141st Regiment who had been surrounded by Germans due to the reckless orders of their general. So basically walked into a trap. The 442nd lost 400 men, rescuing the 230 men of the lost battalion who had survived the ordeal and further secured their reputation for extraordinary bravery and valor. If you're doing the math, I know you're with me when you realize they lost more men trying to save fewer men. But they were Japanese people who died. Right, exactly. So at war's end, the Purple Heart Battalion had suffered almost 10,000 casualties and over 600 too made the ultimate sacrifice. So casualties and death, you know, slightly different in some ways. But, you know, I think that their bravery, especially going into situations where pretty much no one wanted them there in the first place and going forward because they wanted to prove how American they were, you know, it's both heartbreaking and unbelievable. I'm glad that you made me sit down and listen to those numbers and those stories because I find myself glossing over stories of battle because I don't feel like the numbers process, the 442nd or the 100th or the battalions, like they don't sit with me in the same way. But I think it's so important to hear those specific stories to really drive home the point that you made. First of all, the sacrifice they made, period. But then given that they were seen as subhuman or as grouped into this like conglomerate of other people that were seen as undesirables. So I think that's important that we paid attention to that. I mean, I think the other way that Japanese Americans would also help win the war in the Pacific was as interpreters and translators in the war against Japan. We've seen that happening in other nationalities, which we'll talk about in a minute. But in this case, Japanese Americans served in the military intelligence service, intercepting secret Japanese communication or often making quick translations of the battlefield messages and the orders of Japanese officers. On Okinawa and Saipan, the Japanese American servicemen were able to convince some of the Japanese soldiers to even surrender. And they tried to reason with terrified civilians who'd been told by the Japanese to expect horrible atrocities at the hands of the arriving Americans. So similar though, to the stories we told you about the returning black veterans, upon returning home, Japanese American soldiers found that many of the old prejudices remained. Veterans of the 442nd were denied service even while in uniform. Some seven years after the war, Susumu Sato took his family to a restaurant in his hometown of Sacramento. They ordered their meal and it never arrived. And he said, well, there's no point in making any commotion. So we just walked out. Can you imagine? So like you're being discriminated against. You're not getting the food that you're ordered. I mean, come on. After 55 years though, finally, after the war, 20 members of the 442nd would finally be awarded the Medal of Honor, which is America's highest award for valor. And I think one of the things that is important to note is that in World War II, Japanese Americans and African Americans were in the unique position of being forced to serve only in segregated units, right? I think about the Tuskegee Airmen, one of the most famous segregated units that we've probably all heard of, but every one of them, of these, right? Like other people who were Japanese American or African American were also forced in segregated units. The tricky thing then is that other minorities also confronted prejudice, both at home and in the military itself, but they had to participate in blended units. Right. According to Mexican-American Marine Bill Lansford, he says, I think it was little Texas in the Marine Corps. And as you know, Texans and Mexicans weren't exactly bosom buddies in those days. 
He also says as the war advanced and we went on through, these Southern guys began seeing that we weren't what they thought we were. And we began seeing that they weren't what we thought they were. And being Marines was kind of a melting pot and we all got together. So I think that's sort of an incredible testament of how when you get to understand other people's narratives and see who they are and really be there with them, you know, those barriers that are artificially constructed through race or class are broken down because you have one singular goal and that's to, you know, win this war. Mexican-Americans and other Latinos volunteered for the military in great numbers. But as you just noted, Sarah, because they were incorporated into the general military population, the armed forces did not keep a separate count of their enlistment. So we'll never know the exact number of Latinos who served. Among the many Latino heroes of the war was Private Guy Luis Galbadon. And this story is kind of amazing because he's a Mexican-American raised in East L.A. He had been adopted by a Japanese-American family at the age of 12 and became conversant in Japanese. When the war came and his foster family was sent off to an internment camp, but he didn't, he wasn't because he wasn't ethnically Japanese, Galbadon, just 17, joined the Marines. He was sent to the Pacific and saw action on Saipan. In his first test of combat, he killed 33 Japanese soldiers and then single-handedly, like what you were talking about, Sarah, tried to convince many of the other surrounded Japanese soldiers on the island to surrender. Through a combination of quick thinking and a basic command of the Japanese language, Galbadon managed to capture 800 Japanese prisoners, saving not only the lives of the Japanese soldiers themselves, but also those of countless Americans who would have confronted them in battle. Like Galbanon, Latinos served in integrated units, fighting side by side with people from many different ethnic groups. But the armed forces did include a few predominantly Hispanic units, including the 65th Infantry Regiment from Puerto Rico, which served in North Africa and Europe. Another army unit, the 158th Regimental Combat Team, which was made up largely of Mexican-Americans and Native Americans from Arizona, and it was known as the Bushmasters. That regiment distinguished themselves in battle throughout the Pacific theater, participating in fierce fighting in New Guinea and the Philippines. When the war ended, they were poised to help spearhead the planned invasion of mainland Japan. Reflecting on their important role in helping win the war in the Pacific, General MacArthur described the Bushmasters as the greatest fighting combat team ever deployed for battle. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, I realized there's a couple of more super important points that we need to make in this episode, because you just mentioned the Native Americans from Arizona. I mean, Native Americans enlisted in large numbers. There were about 45,000 serving in the armed forces, a figure equal to more than 10% of the Indian, I guess, is it called Indian, the Native American population at the time, right? Navajo code talkers, you've probably all heard of them. They had over 400 code talkers during the course of the war, and they served in all six Marine divisions. In case you don't know, the Code Talker's primary job was to transmit confidential information in their native dialect in order to communicate tactics, troop movements, orders, and other vital battlefield information via telegraphs and radios. And the reason this worked, unlike, you know, we just talked about the Japanese Americans who were able to decipher or spread, you know, like get the opposition's viewpoint, nobody outside of the Navajos themselves could understand their language. And so the code talkers took advantage of their unique linguistic skills to provide a critical tactical advantage to the Marines. Now, many Native Americans came to the war steeped in age-old warrior traditions. There is a man named Joe Medicine Crow of the Crow Nation, and he said, I was ready to go overseas, and a cousin of mine had just come back from Europe. He was a tail gunner. And before he left, a medicine man, a Sundance medicine man called Sacred Powers, gave my cousin an eagle feather, a fluffy feather painted yellow. All right, he said, put that inside your helmet and she'll protect you. 
So long as that, that sacred protective feather was in my helmet, why I was never afraid of anything, he said. In the spring of 1945, with the Germans still desperately fighting in Europe, Medicine Crow performed the four traditional war deeds that are required to become a tribal chief. And while he was serving in the 103rd Infantry Division, he was able to lead a victorious war party, touch an enemy and disarm him and steal his enemy's horses. And he is the last crow to become a chief. I mean, I definitely did not hear these stories growing up in the history books. And I think what's so important to remember from this episode is despite the role that Americans of all ethnicities played in winning, you know, wars, and right now we've been discussing World War II in great detail, many victorious troops returned home to find that little had changed for minorities in America. When they went off to war, Latino recruits had embraced the slogan, Americans all, to express their willingness to fight on behalf of a country that in in many cases had marginalized them and denied them equal opportunities at home. But as we've told you about in the case of Black Americans returning home, in the case of Japanese Americans returning home, those old prejudices and racism, quite frankly, would not always disappear easily. Staff Sergeant Macario Garcia, who was the recipient of the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions fighting in Germany, was refused service in a cafe in Richmond, Texas in 1945 because the cafe did not serve Mexican-Americans. When the remains of Private Felix Longoria, who had been killed in action in the Philippines, returned to his hometown of Three Rivers, Texas in 1949, the local funeral home refused to bury his body because he was Mexican-American, not to mention he just died fighting for his country. So if you're thinking that fighting for your country, demonstrating bravery and equality, and then being treated like second-class citizens once you came home pissed a lot of returning veterans off, you'd be right. And rightfully so. The post-World War II treatment of returning veterans definitely spurred on the civil rights movement. But yet to this day, we still treat our non-white veterans differently after Vietnam, after the Gulf War, when they are honorably discharged, when they retire. And clearly we can go on. Yeah. You might've guessed we could spend triple this time talking about how these veterans have historically been mistreated by the United States. But for this Veterans Day, please, if you're thinking about recognizing a veteran Do not forget to think about those whose contributions have been historically marginalized. There is a lot to honor. Thank you for your service. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast, and we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation.